0: All right. Well, good morning, everybody. and Merry Christmas to all of you. I'm glad you're here today. Uh, Thank you. Thank you for being here today. Um, Dad asked me to talk about something a little bit different. We're doing a little bit of a diversion this week from from Deuteronomy, uh, and we're going to be talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ this morning. Uh, this morning, first service, Dad talked about why Jesus came the first time, and I have been tasked with talking about the reason for Jesus Christ's second second coming. So it's a, it's a daunting task, and I will no doubt uh, fall short of explaining it adequately or perfectly, but uh, I hope that it'll be a blessing for you guys and an encouragement uh, to you this morning. Let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and we thank you so much, Lord God, for your grace and your mercy, Father. We're thankful that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to become a man, Father, that we might see him and we might touch him and handle him, Father, that we might have uh, the words that he spoke while he was here on this earth and the deeds that he did while he was here recorded for us, Father, that uh, here we are 2,000 years later, Father, and and he still, he changed the course of history in so many different ways, uh, Father. But for me, It's what he's done for me, Father, that is the most, uh, the most impactful, Lord. How it relates to each one of us individually, Father, is, is where the rubber meets the road. And we pray, Lord God, that that would be really the focus and the center of all of our faith and all of our religious, if you want to call it religious um, uh, expression, Father, would be through the man, Jesus Christ, and the relationship that we have with you because of him, Lord. We pray that that would be what we seek after, Father, more of him Uh, in us, Father, that we might be like him in every way imaginable or possible by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, so that we might be a light that shines in a dark place just as he was, Father. Uh, We pray, Lord, that you would touch the hearts of people, Lord, uh, around us, uh, people that we know, people that we love, maybe people even that we don't know that we're going to be in contact with at some point, Lord, who don't know Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that somehow through us maybe through a simple word or a kind gesture lord they might see his love and we pray that you would bring souls into the kingdom father we we realize where we are in the timeline of history lord and we re, we realize that the day is 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 rapidly approaching of the return of jesus christ father and we want to be found doing what we've been called to do lord so we pray that you would build us up and equip us this morning father that you would edify us and that you would write these words that we're going to read this morning on our hearts, Lord, that it would be become the song of our hearts, Lord, and, and the hope of our lives uh, would be all bound up in Jesus Christ and what he's done and what he's, what he's doing and what he's going to do, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're going to be doing some Bible flipping uh, this morning, so um, hopefully you're good with those smartphone Bibles that you guys have. Uh, it's funny, you know, it's funny, I've become so used to... Uh, the smartphone Bible that now like, so we're going to have like a real Bible. And it's really kind of sad. You know what I mean? I got a little of my dad, a little of my dad's nostalgia in me. And so when I have like the, like a, 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 an actual paper Bible, it's like, it's like to like flip to a verse or flip to a portion. And it's like, uh, you know, it's like takes me all day. I used to be good at it, but now with these smartphones, but so be ready is all I'm saying. Um, We're going to be talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ, and so I kind of want to get into the doctrine of the comings of Jesus Christ, the reason behind the doctrines for the coming of Jesus Christ, both the Old Testament teachings and the New Testament teachings, and that's going to include all of the comings of Christ. Uh, For us, that would be three. Okay, we have the 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 first what we call the first advent or the first coming of Jesus Christ that was foretold of the prophets in the Old Testament when Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, the Virgin Mary, uh, and he lived his earthly life, and then for three short years, uh, he had a ministry that literally changed, transformed, and revolutionized the entire planet. Uh, it can't be under, it can't be over, rather, stated uh, what Christianity, and, 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 and all Christianity, remember the word Christianity, uh, the, at Antioch were, was, the, was the place where the, the, the believers were first called Christians, and literally it means Christ ones, or those who are seeking to imitate Christ. But that gospel of Jesus Christ, when it went out, it has transformed, it has changed the world. It has absolutely changed the world, and and that was Jesus' first advent, his first coming, to live that perfect life. According to the law of Moses, he lived that perfect life that no man, woman, or child had ever been able to live in the history of the world, okay? And then he died on the cross, of course, for us, in our place, because he was perfect, because he was sinless, and also because he was the son of God, he was able to die for you and me. He didn't have to. See, if I get put to death, it's for my own sins. If I face judgment, it's for my own sins. I can't deal with your judgment. Mine is too much for me to bear, uh, what I got coming to me. Jesus Christ became that sacrificial lamb. He became all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament and the sheeps and the goats and the lambs and the turtle doves, and all those things that were laid out in the law were all pointing to Jesus Christ. He is the propitiation for our sins. He is our atoning sacrifice, and that is the purpose of his death on the cross. Remember him praying in the Garden of Eden, if it's possible, God, knowing what was ahead of him, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not your will be done, um, not my will be done, but your will be done. And of course, Jesus was crucified because it was the only way. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin, there can be no forgiveness of sin. Dad covered the portion from Genesis this morning where right after the fall in the Garden of Eden, and, and the man and the woman are cast out of the garden, and the Bible says that God made for them tunics of skin. And, and, and we have to understand that for in order for God to create tunics of skin, an animal had to be put to death. And so we have the first time in, in Adam and Eve's experience that there's this shedding of blood, there's this taking of life that happens as a result of their sin. And it's this this concept and this thing that's set down from the dawn of creation and the beginning of time as far as we know it, that without the shedding of blood there's no forgiveness of sin. And the the converse of that is true as well. Because of sin, blood must be shed. There has to be a judgment, in other words, for sin. God is perfect in all ways. He's perfect in love, grace, and mercy. He's perfect in peace. He is also perfectly just. He is the lawgiver and he is the judge as well. And he will one day judge the living and the dead. All will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bible says. He's perfect in judgment as well. But because he's also perfect in love and mercy, he provided a way in which man could provide an atonement for himself temporarily until the ultimate atoning sacrifice at the perfect point in human history, Jesus Christ became available for men and women to call upon. And so Jesus Christ, in the fullness of time, was born of a virgin, lived this perfect life, taught us everything we need for life and godliness, and then died in our place and of course was buried in the tomb of, of Joseph of Arimathea, and on the third day rose from the grave, and some days later ascended to the right hand of the Father, the Bible says, forever to make intercession on our behalf. He is your advocate. He is your attorney. Whenever the accuser that the Bible says stands, somehow uh, is able to have access to the throne of God and is able to, to accuse you, and the Bible says he's the accuser of the brethren that accuses us before the throne of God, both and night, and there's this continual thing, and you feel the condemnation when you fall short of the glory of God, and when you have sin that occurs in your own life, and the enemy is so quick to come alongside you, and to condemn you, and to tell you that you've lost your place, and that you don't deserve your place, and you've blown it, and you might as well pack it in, and you might as well quit now, because you've done, you're have you it, that's it, it's over, there's no, and Jesus Christ, understand this, for you personally, sits at the right hand of the Father to be an advocate for you and he stands there, he sits there, and he says, no, no, but they are spoken for. And so Satan can accuse you, and you can accuse yourself, but Jesus Christ, if you've put your hope and your faith and your trust in him and the atoning sacrifice of his blood, it is provided for you not just yesterday and not just today, but forever. You cannot escape the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ if you've called upon his name. And so that's the reason that we so long, because as you walk this life long enough and you experience, and we love to talk about it, it's my favorite subject the grace and the mercy of God. You know why it's my favorite subject? I need it so bad every single day. And I go through my flesh times. You know, I was talking to a brother earlier, I had a couple of days this week, it was not pretty. It was not pretty. I was just like in the, remember Pilgrim's Progress, the Slav despond, you know what I mean? Like in a, in, a, in a fleshly quagmire that I just couldn't get myself out of. And mentally, just just like, just, you know, you feel like that. And just awful and just feeling nasty inside. Like I, I was quiet for two days because my mother taught me, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. So I just get quiet sometimes because I don't want to be a jerk <laughs> to my family more than the usual. You know what I mean? And, and it's just this, this, this thing that happens because of my own flesh and because of the struggles that I have just inside my brain sometimes. <clears throat> and then Jesus Christ is always faithful to come alongside of me. And at some point, you know You know who, you know who it was this week? You know, who? my mother-in-law. Right? Some of you laugh at that. My mother-in-law calls. She calls me Saturday morning at 7 a.m. I'm still sleeping, Ma. All right? The phone rings. It's my mother-in-law. And I have a relationship with my mother-in-law where, you know what I mean? You you think, write the voicemail. Immediately, write the voicemail. You know, I'm not here. I've moved. I've changed my address. But I actually pick up the phone because when my mother-in-law is calling me, I know there's something she has to say to me, and I know it's going to be something important. So I pick up the phone, and I go in the bathroom, (laughs) and and I have a conversation in the bathroom with my mother-in-law. And she spoke to me, and she gave to me some words that God had given her to give to me, and... All of a sudden, all of the walls and all of the barriers and all of the things broke down that were going on in my heart, and Jesus Christ came alongside of me and just brought such a peace and a comfort and a rest to my heart, and I just just am overwhelmed with it, and I'm overcome with it, and I'm so grateful for that. Are you not? So grateful because I didn't deserve that. I don't deserve it. I never deserve it, man. I mean, would you accept you, right? And so sometimes, but usually a lot. No, sometimes no way. And yet God's mercy and his grace. But here's after years of that, you youngsters, after years of falling and getting up and falling and getting up and experiencing the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness over and over again, you begin to have a longing within you. And you old people know what I'm talking about. You begin to have a longing within you to be free from it all. You begin to have a longing within you that I don't want to do this anymore in this body of flesh. I long for that day when I'm redeemed from this body and I'm able to stand before God and I'm able to be with Jesus Christ, to see him as he truly is. The Bible says that when we see him, we'll be like him, for we'll see him as he truly is. And I don't know what that means. I just know it's real good. Okay? And I long for that. And so the Bible talks about this concept of longing for the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He came the first time in what is called the first advent. And now within the heart of every man, woman, and child who was called upon the name of Jesus Christ, there ought to be this growing hope and this growing longing to see Him. I I, 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 I love speaking on His behalf right? And I love talking about him, and I love having fellowship with you guys within the Holy Spirit that we share together because of what he's done. But I can't wait to see him. I want to see him. I want to be with him. And I know what it's like to be young as well and be like, you know, no, not, not this year, Lord right? You, you, I know how you are, right? I, I mean, I remember saying, you know, like, like, I remember praying for the rapture the night before a test, you know what I'm saying? Literally, as a student, oh, it's a good night, Lord. Oh, you know, I am going to, this is going to be a bad one, you know? Oh, oh, and I remember lots of times going, I, I hope he doesn't come back now. Uh, and, but then also there's, within every young heart, I think, is that the longings that, every, that is, is common to you, you want to you have things in your life. You want to grow up. You want to get married. You want to have children. You want to experience things. And so there's this thing, you know, and, and, and it's, in, it's in every heart. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm excited for? Christmas. I love Christmas. It's the most wonderful time of the year. It really is. I can't wait. And the food. You don't even know what I'm going to do to my body this week, you know, it's just so much fun. And I kid you not, this is just being honest. I, you know what I mean? This just is what it is, right? <laughs> and I, you know, you can wait a week, Lord, because this is gonna be a really fun, great week. That thought comes in my head. And then I have to go through the whole exercise of reminding myself: listen, Chubs, yes, the cookies are gonna be fantastic, but to see his face. I heard a pastor once say that everything that there is on planet earth that brings you joy, that brings you fulfillment, that brings you contentment, that makes you go, ah, there's a heavenly copy. There's a heavenly feeling that makes that one feel like a punch in the face. It is going to be so great, so grand, and so wonderful to finally be free of everything that goes along with being part of the fallen race. And to be able to freely sit in the presence of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and bask in that glory for all eternity and all the other things that go along with it. Makes me excited. So, the first advent of Jesus Christ, and then we have... The second coming of Jesus Christ, okay? The second coming of Jesus Christ is when Jesus Christ returns as a conquering hero, not as a suffering Messiah, but as the conquering Messiah. And he comes, the Bible says that his foot will touch the Mount of Olives and it will split and it will open up the earth and he will enter into the Eastern Gate, which here's a really cool tidbit for you. Not many years ago, they discovered archaeologically the original Eastern gates the original eastern gates of the city of Jerusalem. They're actually underground because it's so old there that it's just like a city destroyed, rebuilt upon, a city destroyed, rebuilt upon. So there's things buried deep in the ground, like like parts of, of, of cities and homes and gates, and they found the original eastern gate. And then we were, in, we were in Israel at the time, and our tour guide Amir says to us, Imagine this in your head. They found these eastern gates, they're under the ground. And the Bible says that when Messiah ascends from heaven, uh, descends from heaven, and his foot touches the Mount of Olives, the Bible says that the earth is going to split open. He's going to enter through that valley. And what that means is the original eastern gate into the city of Jerusalem is going to be opened, and Jesus Christ is going to walk through it. It's just, just amazing stuff like that. I, I, I love that. But that's the second coming. Now, here's where we share the same hope. It's not the same, but it's the same, based on the same scriptures, as the Israelites, the Jewish people, the Jewish faith, what we call Judaism. They have been waiting for the second coming of, we call it the second coming of Christ. They would say the coming of Messiah since the beginning. Now, They did not believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. They were looking for the conquering Messiah who was going to come, the son of David. And that's one of the things, the son of David. He was going to be of the progeny of the line of the house of King David. And they were looking for someone who was going to come and be a conqueror. Even Jesus' own disciples, again and again and again and again, mistook Jesus' purpose for being there. They wanted to be a part. They thought, we're going to be generals. We're going to be his right-hand men, his left-hand men. We're going to be there when he sets up. They didn't realize. And Jesus was telling them over and over again, no, no, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men and be put to death. And on the third day, rise from the grave. And, be, and they were like, yeah, but what, 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 you know, they completely missed it. Completely missed it. But Jesus Christ told them that that's why they were there. And that's what the scripture also tells us, and we're going to get there if I can open this up. But Jesus Christ had to come for the reasons we discussed at the beginning of this message. The second coming is when he's going to come and establish that throne that we're looking for and the Jewish people are also looking for, they just ain't looking for the same guy, right? And then there's the thing in the middle that we call the rapture of the church, and that's where I kind of want to start. A critic of the rapture doctrine once challenged uh, Dave Hunt, who was a teacher that uh, he's gone to be with the Lord now. But he, we for years and years and years listened to Dave and read his books and listened to his tapes, and he was here and he spoke, amazing man of God. Uh, But somebody challenged him one time and said, show me in the New Testament, they didn't believe in the rapture of the church, and they said, show me in the New Testament where it says there's going to be two comings of Christ. And Dave Hunt answered them and he said, show me in the Old Testament where it says there was going to be two comings of Christ. Because the church, Christians, we, of course, believe that the Old Testament prophecies laid out two comings of the Messiah, one to come, the suffering Messiah, to die on the cross for our sins, and then the second coming of the Messiah, to rule from the throne of David from Jerusalem. Okay? So, we believe there is two comings spoken of in the Old Testament. Then Jesus did come did come. Uh, Jesus did come. He died on the cross. He rose to be with the Father. And now as we read through the Gospels and the Epistles, which are the letters of of the apostles to the churches, we believe that it clearly speaks of two comings again, or two appearings, what we call the rapture of the church, and then that final coming of the Messiah, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, here is the issue. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it say specifically that the Messiah would come twice. And nowhere in the New Testament does it say specifically that Jesus would appear twice after he rose from the dead and ascended to the Father. So the question is, why do we believe and cling to this idea that there's going to be two comings that were prophesied in the Old Testament, and then again, two comings prophesied in the New Testament. The answer is this. You cannot take the prophecies concerning Messiah in the Old Testament and put them into one occurrence. You can't take the prophecies concerning Messiah in the Old Testament and put them into one occurrence. And in the same way, in the New Testament, you can't take the prophecies and the words spoken concerning the appearing of Jesus Christ and put them into one occurrence. I'm going to give you some examples from the Old Testament. This is from Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4. It says this, he shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And so we have this picture of the Messiah ruling the entire world and it being a place finally of peace. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 to 10 says this Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's why Jesus came in on a donkey on Palm Sunday. That's why he had them arrange that to fulfill this prophecy. But then it says this, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the horse from Jerusalem, the battle bow, shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth." So here we have these prophecies about the Messiah in which he is ruling the world and everything is at peace. Everything is at rest and all mankind uh, are at peace with one another. Well, here's Isaiah chapter 53 and you guys know much of this portion. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, this is Isaiah 53, 3 to 12. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before it cheers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who can declare of his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living." For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked. Doesn't sound like the conquering Messiah ruling from Jerusalem, does it? But with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many for he shall bear their iniquities the old testament presents both a suffering messiah and a conquering messiah not only that the scripture also teaches that the jewish people would see the messiah when he finally comes at what we call that triumphant coming in all his glory, and recognize him specifically as the very one whom they had rejected the first time. This is from Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. And it says this, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. So these are the basis amongst others upon which Paul, remember, went from synagogue to synagogue demonstrating that Jesus was in fact the Christ. Acts chapter 17, verses 2 and 3, it says this. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, into, and this is into the synagogue. And for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And so, that's what Paul was doing when they went from town to town to bring the gospel. He would first go into the synagogue, and the Bible says he would reason with them from the scriptures. Now, mind you, that's the Old Testament. They didn't have the, he didn't have the New Testament, right? There was no New Testament. He had the Torah. He would reason with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And these are the types of scriptures that Paul used to show them that no, Messiah is just not going to come one time to be the conqueror, but first he had to come to conquer sin and death. He first had to come to be that perfect sacrificial lamb. This is the gospel that Paul, using the Old Testament prophecies, preached to the Jewish people in that day. Well, in the same way, the New Testament presents the return of Christ in two different ways. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24, uh, and of course, this is the famous Olivet Discourse. Uh, where Jesus had earlier said to them, because they were marveling at the temple. Remember, uh, Herod the Great had, had, had completed the temple and built on the temple, and the temple was immense. It was enormous. The stones were massive that they used in building it, and Herod was responsible for that, and the disciples were there marveling over the temple. And Jesus made the statement and said, Do You see all of these things? There is not one stone of this temple that will be left standing upon the other, but they will all be thrown down. And so later on, uh, the disciples came to him and asked him, when will these things be and what will be the signs of of your coming and of the end of the age? So Matthew chapter 24, we're going to read a couple of select verses. First, we're going to read verses 29 to 31. Verses 29 to 31, because Jesus is going down, and then he gets, he gets, he gets to the, what we call the great tribulation. He says, and now here he says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Skip down to verse 36 to 37. Jesus, in the middle of this discourse, says this, But of that day and hour no one knows not even the angels of heaven but my father only but as the days of noah were so also will be the coming of the son of uh, so also will the coming of the son of man be skip down to verse 40 then two men will be in the field one will be taken and the other left two women will be grinding at the mill one will be taken and the other left watch therefore for you do not know what hour your lord is coming and so Jesus here is speaking of two very different events. We have the one event that happens after the tribulation of those days. And if you go to the book of Revelation and you follow through, and Dave Hunt used to say, imagine you're a tribulation saint. The rapture happens, you're left behind, and you go through the tribulation, and you got your Bible and you're hiding out in the woods and you're running from the Antichrist and from, his, from his, the world police and, and all of these other things, and you're able to, but you're able to sneak down and look on the TV through your neighbor's window and see what's happening on CNN. And you see all the events of Revelation played out, every single thing, through the seals, through the bowls, through the trumpets. You see everything happen exactly as it's laid out in the book of Revelation. There's the two prophets, oh my goodness, and you see it all happening. And then you see Antichrist gather all of the armies of the world, and they're in the Holy Land, in the Valley of Megiddo. And then you say to yourself, well, I don't think he'd come now. He says, that's exactly when we know the Messiah is going to come back. We know that's exactly when the second coming is going to happen. And Jesus Christ here in Matthew chapter 24 himself says that all are going to see him coming. It says, the the, the powers of heaven will be shaken, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And then when you skip down to this, that day and that hour that no one knows about, not even the angels of heaven, but as the days of Noah were, so will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. Another place it says, as it was in the days of Lot. Well, the days of Noah and the days of Lot are marked with what? sin, and basically party time. People were just living their lives. There was no great tribulation happening up until Noah and his family went into the ark. There was no great tribulation happening in Sodom and Gomorrah until Lot and his family, part of them, were taken out of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then the judgment came upon them unexpectedly. And so there are two very different things here that Jesus is speaking about. Throughout the Gospels, And the epistles, Jesus' return is presented both in a way that reflects the Old Testament prophecies of the conquering Messiah and another that is a mystery, in the same way that the first coming of the Messiah was a mystery to the Jewish people of old. Uh, In in the book of Ephesians, the letter to the church in Ephesus, uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 3 to 5, Paul says this how that by revelation, He made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, here it is, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. What what is Paul talking about? The mystery that was made known to him and also to the other apostles and prophets was the mystery of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Remember, the Old Testament saints, the Old Testament sages, and the Old Testament scribes, they only believed in one coming of Messiah. They didn't see two there, most of them. It was a mystery to them. This idea that Messiah would come and become a man, and die, they didn't accept that at all. And Paul is calling that a mystery that in ages past was not understood, but now has been made known. Then in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, he presents the other mystery. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 to 52, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. So, the mystery of the Old Testament age, the mystery of the Old Testament age was the incarnation. The coming of Jesus Christ the first time, it was a mystery. The, huh. How is that going to work? I don't understand that. And now Paul is presenting another mystery, a new mystery to the church age. And here's what he says in first Corinthians 15:51 to 52. Behold, I tell you a mystery. I love mysteries. <laughs> we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. He speaks of this again in his first letter to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 18. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead of Christ will rise first. Now, the Lord himself descending, the second coming of Christ, we expect the Messiah, we expect Jesus Christ to descend from heaven, to set his foot on Mount Olives, and then go into Jerusalem. But here's what Paul says about this coming. He'll descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. The word rapture comes from the Latin word uh, raptus, or excuse me, I, I said that all wrong. The word rapture, we get the word rapture from the Greek word harpazo, which was then translated into Latin as raptus, and it means to be taken by force. Okay, so we say rapture's not in the Bible, rapture's not in the Bible. The word caught up is harpazo, which was translated to raptus, which is where we get the word rapture. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. In other words, tell each other, it's going to get better, it's going to get better. So, I want to move on from there. Hopefully, I've explained at least adequately the first and second coming of Jesus Christ and how they're spoken of in the Old and New Testaments. I'd like to focus now on the third appearing of our Lord specifically, not His earthly life, not the rapture, but what the Bible calls the second coming, which people sometimes confuse the second coming of Jesus Christ with the rapture. But remember that when the rapture happens, Jesus doesn't come to earth, but instead, we go to meet Him in the clouds. When Jesus died on the cross, he became both our high priest and our sacrifice, his blood making the way for our redemption from sin and death. But what was won that day was more than just the victory over sin and death. When God created man, he gave him dominion over the earth. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, It says this, God said, then God said, let us make man in our image, you guys know this this portion, according to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So at creation, this is where we get the idea that dominion of the entire earth was given to mankind. But when men fell, when mankind fell to sin, dominion over the planet Earth was forfeited to Satan. Here's where we get that from. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, and verses 5 to 7. This is Jesus when he's in the wilderness. He's, he's fasting, and he's being now tempted by the devil. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority... I will give you and their glory. Notice, for this has been delivered to me and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, imagine the audacity of Satan saying this to Jesus. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. So here Satan claims to have dominion over the earth and is actually offering Jesus the mantle of Antichrist, which would be the ruler of the world given his power by Satan. That's literally what Satan was trying to do here. Uh, Jesus, of course, uh, rebukes Satan and tells him that you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone, but he never disputes Satan's claim about having dominion over planet earth. Satan did have dominion over planet earth. Now, Jesus would indeed reclaim dominion over the earth from Satan, but he did it the hard way, and the way that it had been prophesied by Isaiah and by David the prophet. In doing this, Jesus accomplished three very important things, and I want to focus on these for a minute. He descended first. He descended into hell uh, after his death and freed the righteous dead from their imprisonment. We've talked a little bit about this how that before Jesus Christ, everyone who died went to Hades. No one could go to heaven, what we call heaven. No one could go to the presence of God because they all were unworthy. Even though they were righteous, even though they had offered sacrifices, until Jesus Christ was was put to death on the cross and his blood was shed, no one could go to the throne room of heaven. So Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches, went down into Hades and preached to those who were in captivity and brought them to heaven. Here's where we get that from. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18-19, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, I love that, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, notice Made alive by the spirit, by whom, by the Spirit, by whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison. Then in Ephesians chapter four and verses eight through 10 it says this: "Therefore he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men." Now this, he ascended, what does it mean, but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. So this is where we get that doctrine, that Jesus Christ, before he rose on the third day, during that time, his spirit descended into Hades, preached the gospel to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to David, to all of the saints of the Old Testament, and said, hey, I'm here. (laughs) I'm here. And then led captivity captive. They were able at that point in time to go to heaven. The second thing he did is he took the keys, or the power over both hell and death from Satan. I love this. Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, when Jesus appears to John on the island of Patmos, this is what he says to him. One of the things. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. This is what Jesus said to John. He had the keys or the power over both hell and death. The third thing that he did, he won the right to take back dominion over the earth from Satan. After his resurrection and just before he ascended to the right hand of the Father, Jesus said this to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18. He said this, And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, here it is, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And that's when he goes, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. But he says here very specifically, all authority has been given to me in heaven and of earth. So you see what Jesus has done. He has freed the righteous dead from their imprisonment in Hades. He has taken the keys of, of Hades and death. And he has taken the right of ownership over planet earth, back from Satan. During the revelation of Jesus Christ, John was transported, of course, into the Spirit, on the, uh, to the throne room of God. Remember, he's caught up in chapter 4 of Revelation to the throne room of God, and he sees all of these, these beautiful and inexpressible things, and he's given the vision in its entirety of the revelation. He's given the vision of the tribulation period and the second coming of Jesus Christ. But before he's shown any of that, he describes two scenes. The first thing he has shown is the continual worship of Almighty God. First things first, right? The first thing he's shown is the continual worship of Almighty God. And the second is the delivering of a scroll from God the Father to God the Son. Here's that portion. Uh, this is from Revelation chapter 5. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it, so I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has prevailed To open the scroll and loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign On the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessed and blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. Wow, what is this scroll? What is this scroll? Now, remember, when he looses the seals, that's the beginning. of of John's description of the events leading up to and going through the tribulation period. So what is the scroll that no one was worthy to loose or to open or to even look at? Well, most believe the title deed to planet earth. I think based on the other portion of scripture that we've read, it makes sense. It does to me. So this is what we are waiting for, Christians. Not just the redemption of our bodies and the bodies of those we love, but the redemption of the whole world from sin and death. What's the second coming of Jesus Christ about? It's about taking it all back. About taking it all back. I don't know about you. I get tired of it. I get tired of seeing the world and the state that it's in. How people treat one another. The hatred that people have towards one another. The things that people do to one another and the state that this world finds itself in. We are waiting on the redemption, not only of us, not only of us and our physical bodies. Friends, we are waiting on the redemption of this very world, this globe that we live on with the second coming of Jesus Christ. He has overcome. He is victorious. It truly is finished. The war has already been won, and we now only wait for the coronation ceremony. So, Merry Christmas to every single last one of you. Not just because he came on that night, born to Mary and Joseph. Not just because he died on the cross for our sins. But Merry Christmas to you because he's coming again. Amen? Come on up, guys. We're going to share communion really quick, and then I'll send you guys on your way. Well, this is the celebration of the thing that bought it back. This is what this is. The communion table is the celebration of what Jesus did, what he accomplished on the cross at Calvary, when all of his blood was shed for you and me, that's how that title deed was won back. That's how he became the worthy is the lamb who was slain. And he's worthy to receive honor and glory. This is the celebratory meal of that. Every time we take the communion to ourselves, every time, and we think about what Jesus Christ did for us, there ought to be that thought, it's not just the forgiveness of sins. I mean, that's enough, right? For heaven's sakes, so thankful for that. But it's not just the forgiveness of sins, but it's the redemption of the whole world. It's the redemption of the whole world that Jesus won on Calvary. So come on up, guys. We'll pass these out. And I encourage you just to, as, as these are being passed out, just to talk to the Lord. Whatever it is that you need to say to him this morning, uh, whatever it is that you would want to, the conversation you'd want to have with him so that your heart is ready to receive this.
1: Hallelujah. This hope will guide me into death. Hallelujah for the cross.
0: Jesus Christ, when he bled and he died on that cross at Calvary, had you in mind, had you in mind that day for your redemption, for the forgiveness of your sins, so that your path back to God could be made sure. That's the purpose of the whole thing, your redemption. The rest is just bonus. The rest is just bonus stuff. I can't wait to see all that as well, though. It's going to be a great day. (laughs) When you take this, say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.